Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Brain for Biz, B-R-A-I-N-F-O-R-B-I-Z and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. That is L-A-U-R-I-E at brainforbusiness.ie. So to today's show, I'm delighted to be speaking today to Jason Murphy. Jason is an economist who has worked at the Australian Treasury, the Ministry of Finance of the Republic of Nauru, and has written for the Australian Financial Review. He writes regularly for news.com.au and Crikey blogs and has a passion for bringing economics into the everyday world. Jason's 2019 book, Incentivology, explored the mechanisms behind many spectacular failures and successes in our history, culture, and everyday lives, and shows us how to use or perhaps even lose incentives in our world at large. Matthew Dunkley, writing in Australia's premier newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, asserted that Jason Murphy possesses that rare gift of originality of thought and, rarer still, the ability to write about it with clarity, wit and insight. Jason, it is great to speak to you. Lawrence, thank you very much for having me. In your book, Incentivology, as I said, you explore the way that incentives influence and shape us. But to start with, what is an incentive? You've got two two main categories, uh, Lawrence: the stick and the carrot. Uh, and we lump those we lump those two together: reward and punishment. Uh, and we do that because they both exploit these deep neural networks that that we have uh, that are designed to help us seek reward and, and avoid punishment. Um, but they, they work very differently, the, uh, the reward and the punishment. And um, it's very important, I think, for people that are thinking about incentives to be very, very careful about uh, choosing between reward and punishment because there's, there's some really important practical differences in what happens if you uh, institute one rather than the other. So tell me then, why are incentives important? I think incentives are important because they're so powerful. They're, they're this incredibly powerful force shaping human behavior. And we have the choice whether to control that power or to, to let it sort of exist in its wild state, pushing us hither and thither without, uh, without really having as much say over what these incentives are making us do. Uh, so, so if you think about, um, Incentives, for me, they're a real source of optimism because it's, it says this is a power that we can use to shape the world into a better place. If we see a problem, we can use uh, incentives, rewards or punishments to try to shape human behaviour and, and, and move the world away from um, the way it might, might be naturally and towards uh, a situation that, that works better. And the reason that they're so powerful is that they, they draw on these, these pathways in our brain that are you know, very deep. They're not just part of our, our human cerebral structure. These are animal pathways that make us, you know, fear the predator and, and seek out the food and the mate. These are incredibly deep pathways that exist in all of our brain and uh, all of our brains and are ex extremely powerful when you 
when you activate them in the right way. So yeah, I, I feel like we, we need to we need to as a society come face to face with incentives a lot more and, and admit that they're that they're powerful, that they're out there and that we need to we need to take control of them. And in terms of that then, I'm thinking particularly of the carrot and the stick that you mentioned earlier on. Are some incentives more important than others? That that is such a good question. I think that you know people like to study incentives in isolation. You'll see a lot of um, programs that study you know the effect of giving people a fifty dollar uh, voucher here or you know a, a fine there. But when when you add a, a you know an additional incentive to to the world, it, it just is a layer on top of all the incentives that already exist in terms of the things that make us feel good and shape our behavior. And so what, what you see here is I've got this quite holistic view of incentives. I'm not just thinking about the, I suppose, the synthetic incentives that we add into the world, but the, the, the way the world is already and the way that it pushes us around and, and pushes us to a, towards certain outcomes and away from, from others. And, and humans are social animals, and I think that the that that network of social incentives is one of the most powerful and most important sets of incentives uh, that exist that exist in the world. And you can see that at the moment in the pandemic, there are social incentives pushing some groups towards vaccination and and uh, and and isolation, and yet in in some other social groups, the uh, the social incentive pushes people uh, away from vaccination, and that's proving to be much, much more powerful for those people than, than the incentives that the government is able to layer on top or even the incentive of being vaccinated and being able to avoid illness. So acknowledging, the, acknowledging that the world is rich in incentives in its, in its raw state and these social incentives are incredibly powerful and, and, and uh, that we, we can only add a little bit on top of that is, I think, really vital. And I think in some ways, you, you perhaps have already answered the, the question that I had sitting in the back of my mind, which is that in incentives, you know, are they all about money or are they just about money? So you started off there talking about, you know, give someone a $50 voucher or a 50 euro voucher or a 50 pound voucher, whatever, or, or else a fine. But then you went on to, to talk about all of that, that great complexity that is the modern world. So in essence, it's not just about the money. It's, it's about much more than that. No, and it is. It's it's much more than that. It's it's about anything that we might value, including social status, and and it can work in very very funny ways. And I like. I'm going to give you an example that's that's in the book, and I, I really I really like this example because I've seen it with my own eyes. Uh, and it, it's an example of an accidental incentive where a system has been created in society, and one of the sort of absurd side effects uh, of this system is to is to create a new incentive that totally changes people's behavior. Uh, and the system that I'm talking about is Instagram. And the behavior change that I'm talking about is the way restaurant meals look. These days, if you go to a fancy brunch spot, you will never get anymore a delicious bowl of brown goulash because these days the chef knows that he or she has to make the the meal pop because good Instagram is 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 absolutely enormous for the word of mouth of a, of a restaurant. And so these days meals are designed in these elaborate architectural forms with all these bright pinks and yellows and greens and 
Um, you know, they in Australia, we talk a lot about plating up, which is a term that has been popularized by a cooking show. And, you know, people focus a lot on the way food looks on the plate these days to the perhaps even to the exclusion of flavor. And, um, and that's just this, this incentive that has been created for the chefs and for the restaurant owners completely by accident by this new system that's been developed in society, which is, you know, smartphone cameras and, and photo sharing software. And, and that's just a one tiny example of the way incentives can be created by accident and have nothing to do with, with money directly. The reference there to Instagram also reminds me of some of the uh, material that came out last year in the, the Facebook leaks when it was sort of talk about the impact on particularly teenage girls and the, I, I guess you might perhaps call it an incentive structure to to look a particular way based on the fact that that's what was coming up on, on Instagram. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think these social media networks are, cr are creating or amplifying incentives in, in very strong ways. Uh, and you could talk about radicalization of, of people online and, and lone wolf attacks as well as a, as a sort of a, there's a new incentive to, to sort of be seen to be, to see, to be seen to be crazier and more committed to the cause than other, than other people in the, uh, in the social, in the social network that you belong to. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, this is, it, I think it really illustrates the importance of, of thinking about the incentives in society that we're creating by accident um, and, and, and acknowledging that. I feel like if we acknowledge that we've created them by accident, then we can, we can act against them more easily rather than seeing them as this inevitability that we're powerless to stop. You know, these are just incentives that we've made and we can change the systems and we can add other, other incentives on top to to try to ameliorate the effects of those. Um, and that's why I'm optimistic about the use of incentives for making the world a, a better place if we, if we grapple with them. In practical terms then, you use the term grapple with them, but how can incentives be utilised? Are there particular things that, that should or shouldn't be done? Is it, is it simply to be perhaps a little bit flippant, a case of banning all pictures of restaurant meals from Instagram and that'll solve that problem? Or is it something a little bit more considered? To go back to the really high level, uh, I would say that when, you, when you've got an incentive that you want to introduce, whether it be a, a reward or a punishment, the most important thing in designing that incentive is making sure that the behavior is really easy to observe you know whether it's a good behavior that you want to reward or a bad behavior that you are trying to uh, deter that you want to make sure you can see that behavior happening because if you offer a reward for something that it's hard to tell if people are really doing it or not people are going to line up around the block to tell you that they've done that behavior and you, they deserve that reward and you know this is such a such a classic thing, you know, the government provides a subsidy for, for some, some act. It might be, you know, planting additional trees that act as a carbon sink and companies that would uh, have already planted those trees line up to, to get the subsidy. So observability is super important and even more so with punishments because, uh, you know, if you're trying to punish people for behaviour that they're hiding, then you are going to need a really significant investigative force to find out what they're doing. And that comes with its own enormous range of difficulties uh, when you have when you have to set up uh, investigations and find out when what went on behind the scenes in order to uh, 
impose these sanctions. Um, so for simplicity, I think making sure that you're rewarding and um, making sure that the behaviours that you're trying to reward and punish are highly observable stops people from trying to cheat you. In your book, you give the example of, uh, the, the, I guess, for a want of a better term, the, the rat catchers of, of Hanoi. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that incentive process went a bit uh, askew? Yeah, that's a that's such a such a great story, and it's it, it's it's a true story. This uh, this academic was down in the uh, archives of uh, of Vietnam, and he he found the evidence of this. Uh, basically, the French colonial um, administration there built a lot of sewers as part of a project to, uh, you know, try to help Hanoi. And what they got was an awful lot of rats um, invading the city. And that was kind of the opposite of the idea of building the sewers. But they thought they sort of hoped that the, the sewers would make the place cleaner. Um, and so there are rats everywhere. And, and the colonial administration has a has a nice simple plan, which is to pay people for dead rats uh, and it, you know it works people are bringing in dead rats uh, and the rat population goes down but then after a while the rat population does stabilize at a, at, a, at a steady steady rate and people are bringing in a certain number of rats every day and I, I think your listeners will not be surprised to hear that the end of this story is that one day a, a low-level bureaucrat going through the old town of Hanoi discovers a rat farm and the uh, the locals are uh, breeding these rats to take in to get to get the payment that the the administration is offering. So that's that's a just a, such a cute and classic story of a perverse incentive where you you are you're paying to get rid of rats and it actually uh, uh, reverses on you and you end up you end up paying the the locals to to breed rats and you know that's that's not so common but it is a good example of how incentives can go wrong. If you're not very careful about about their design, and obviously that example there from Vietnam was slightly different, but some of the examples you give remind me of of what have been called nudges by by Sunstein and uh, and, and Thaler. How how do incentives differ from nudges, or are they perhaps all part of the same system? Yeah, I think they're they're basically part of the the same system. You know, the nudge is sort of um, very much a public policy uh, design question and it proceeds from the idea that you would like to change people's behaviour but you don't want to bring in a law. Um, so you make some smaller change to the web of incentives that shapes people's behaviour sh short of a law. And, and that by doing so, you know, it's, it's an American idea because... You know, it fits into their their strong libertarian tradition of preserving people's um, freedom from from excessive government and their ability to choose their own courses of action. So, it bridges that divide between shaping people's behaviour, which I think we all agree is part of modern society. We we individually, as companies, as governments, that's that's kind of what civilization is. It's about shaping other people's behaviour but also that American tradition of preventing government overreach by banning certain actions. So to me, the nudge is, is an, sort of a, a small and, and a, a subset of incentives that, that fits into the world of public policy and has this peculiar motivation of, of, of not reaching for the, the big stick of, of a law in order to, to get the job done. Whereas what I like to think about is, is bigger than that. 
I'm interested in laws. I think that they're a massive part of the incentive landscape and, um, you know, they, they work to shape social expectations and social norms as well as, as well as, you know, providing the direct sanction. So I think, you know, nudges, we can think of nudges as a subset of uh, incentivology, if you like. Okay, that makes sense. I'm curious, though, that, and maybe I, I've misunderstood, but much of what you've been saying about incentives, and as you said, there are again, carrots and sticks, seems to be very much about someone else incentivizing you. And so, you know, impinging on your agency, I don't want to go too far down the libertarian route, but but if just work with that for a moment, you know, psychologists would perhaps argue that you know, intrinsic motivation. So doing something because you want to do it and you are excited by the thing itself is is more powerful and more important than extrinsic factors such as the carrot or the stick. How does that fit with your concept of incentives? Yeah, it's 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 an awkward fit there. And for me, the biggest problem is that I get a ton of pushback when I talk about how important and powerful incentives are and how much we want to be able to control this force before it controls us. People say, no, you, you must be a bad person. It's the, the, the most important way for people to live is for people to do things because, because they want to, because they're good people. And then I'm in the invidious position of arguing against that. Uh, and I have at times come across looking like the bad guy. So when I think about the the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, you know, I don't see it in these these black and white terms. I think there is a big feedback loop between the incentives that exist in a culture and and what gives people intrinsic motivation. And I'm gonna I'll give you an example from from New York City. In New York City, which is one of, if not the biggest city in the United States of America car ownership is much, much, much lower than in the rest of the United States of America. And I think just about anyone would say that the, the culture of culture of New York City is, is against car ownership. But equally, you know, that city is, is a place with huge amounts of in and out migration. People move there from, from uh, the flyover states and then they, they move back. People are coming there from overseas, etc. And, and And what is special about the culture of, of New York City is really not so much the the people that are there who are similar to in the rest of America, but that the the shape of the city makes owning a car really, really difficult. So it's not actually just culture. Like the culture feeds off the shape of the city and the shape of the city provides incentives for, for not using a, a, a car and not owning a car. So my argument is that culture is itself shaped by the, the natural incentives of the environment. And so um, when, when people are, are making choices that they, they feel are intrinsically motivated, often there, if you do, dig deep enough, you can find, you know, buried underneath all the, the human emotions that we have, we can find the, the incentives that are actually driving that, that process. So in essence, the, the root of a lot of intrinsic motivations you're suggesting is actually perhaps contextually or environmentally driven. So possibly really the root is extrinsic, even if we don't realize it. Yeah, it sticks and carrots all the way down. <laughs> well, that perhaps brings me to to, to another point. And, and you mentioned there 
this idea of people seeing you as a bad guy because of this sort of um you know carrot and stick approach and i'm paraphrasing um but is there perhaps a dark side to incentives you know can they be used to manipulate us yep uh 100% and it's i think it's it's like any power you might think of electricity or fire or or the ability to split the atom you know any power can be used for good or evil and if you create a population that is fluent in understanding those systems they are better able to push back against the the evil uses of 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 that of that power uh so you know for me the book's called incentivology not not incentivism it's not uh it's it's not a uh, a church it's it's an academic discipline for me and and so we're we're trying to pick apart incentives to understand where they work and where they fail and help people understand what what these powerful forces are both when they're using them and uh and, and having you know having other people apply those incentives to them in, in order that they can be um able able to have a say in those incentives and, and push back where that's appropriate is it perhaps also, and I'm just thinking as, as you're talking there, is there perhaps also a danger that because people have become so used to this idea of incentives from, for example, a government who, you know, as you said earlier, might give someone a $50 voucher or there might be a fine or whatever else, but also so aware of this idea of nudges, even if they may not necessarily use that terminology that some people are starting to see incentives and nudges where they don't actually exist, which is perhaps leading to this mad world of conspiracy theories we've had over the last couple of years with COVID and everything else linked to it. That is a really interesting question. I hadn't actually thought about that. Can, can you give me an example of, of what you're talking about? So... I, you know, I say some people I know on social media at a distance have gone quite a way down the whole QAnon rabbit hole. And what seems to come out is they're saying, well, this is what's really happening. They're almost kind of starting to see incentives and nudges and pushes and carrots and sticks in places where there aren't necessarily things. So, you know, to, to use that latin expression post hoc ergo propter hoc they're seeing things as as having causal relationships even though it's simply a correlation that something is happening by pure chance after something else but they're seeing it as all wrapped up as a a big incentivized framework that is designed to you know con us all into being vaccinated or whatever else yeah yeah all right i understand what you're saying yeah i think that that is that is a huge uh human tick isn't it the desire to to make sense of the world and to see causal links where in fact the relationship is, is sort of random or, or, or otherwise. And um, yeah, it leads, it leads people to all sorts of mistakes when, when we, when we see cause and effect where there is none. And I guess that means that, you know, there are limits to what is caused by incentives. It's not, uh, <laughs> it's not all, it's not all behavior is explicable by someone else you know, encouraging a person to act that way. And I guess as well, the, there's a point to which it depends where we're being incentivized from. And, and 
again i'm thinking about those conspiracy theory perspectives that people might be incentivized to become ever more outlandish if they're being or responding to incentives from people within that particular community who are simply egging them on uh, and, and leading to ever more bizarre thoughts and, and behaviors and uh, and perspectives that's right i think you can you can win the uh, acclaim of a community by demonstrating your commitment to that community more strongly than than other people in one way to demonstrate your commitment is to have even crazier beliefs than uh, than everyone else in, in, that doesn't work in every community no in, in, indeed and that reminds me of uh, of uh, a post i saw the other day someone claiming that recent protests in canberra attracted uh, canberra being of course the capital of australia with a population of about 400 people uh, 400,000 people sorry that these uh, protests attracted about 2.8 million people which is clearly uh, over the top and, and very unlikely and in fact factually incorrect yet this went unchallenged in that particular community you see this so, online all the time Pat. what what is signal boosted on on social media is is often an extreme version of of a, a belief that perhaps has more signaling power in 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 saying something about the person that is is retweeting it or sharing the post rather rather than you know necessarily being the most important fact or or the the representative issue from a from a domain so i i guess to to sort of pull it together a little bit are there do you feel any key takeaways for i guess for governments uh, for organizations or indeed for, for leaders who are possibly trying to work with incentives in order to to hopefully make things better and make things work more efficiently and effectively. Yeah, I think it's about getting on the front foot and identifying the incentive landscape that is out there before you've even designed a single incentive yourself. Uh, the the people whose behaviour you're, you're looking at, um, they, they are affected by a huge landscape of incentives and anything that you add to that has to be cognizant of what's there already. So it's about accepting that the incentive that, that you throw into the mix is not necessarily going to be definitive. Uh, and then it's also, uh, and this is really a, pr a very practical point, is that understanding that once you've designed your incentive, it's not over because the, um, the people are going to try to game the system. This is something we haven't touched on much in this chat, but is, is a big part of the book, uh, you know, an incentive system gets gets played over time, and so the designer needs needs to be nimble. You cannot set and forget. Uh, if you if you set and forget, then the, the people that are gaming the system have a have have a large party. You need to uh, you need to uh, continually adapt and make your um, make your incentive system sort of evolve and move and and dance along with the the people that are trying to uh, exploit it. So those are those are two big things I would say are practical practical lessons for uh, people designing incentives and, and they're both hard work controlling these controlling incentives is, is definitely not easy but when you get it right it's super powerful and i guess to link that back to the example from uh, vietnam that we talked about earlier the initial system was possibly fine but then after a while people figured out as you put it, how to game the system and the, the system again then needed to be transformed into a new way of approaching things to be more efficient and effective. 100% right. Yeah, you need to that it, you need to stay, well, you can never be a step ahead, but you, you can't let the, the, the people that are gaming the system get a step ahead for too long. You've got to, be, got to make an incentive system that has built into it the capacity to, 
to change and, and, and to remake itself when the behavior changes in, in ways that you don't want. Uh, that makes a huge amount of sense. So Jason, if anyone wanted to find out more about your work, where can they go? Probably finding me on Twitter is, is a good, uh, a good, good place. Uh, and, uh, I'm often on there sharing pictures of my dog or, uh, insights on incentives and, um, links to my blog and other things. So, uh, I would suggest Twitter. My handle is Jace Murphy, J A S E M U R P H Y. Fantastic. And I will make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Jason Murphy, uh, author of Incentivology. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a delight. song electronic beat time and dream sequence by lorenzo's music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license